Welcome to the Arts Report. You're listening to CITR Radio 101.9 FM, broadcasting from unceded Musqueam territory in Vancouver. I'm your host, Ashley Park, and I'm joined by my guests. Jake Clark. Andy Ta. And I'm Josh Gabdwell. All right. And we have a lot to uh, talk about today, but it's all going to be focused on a central theme of absurdity. And um, we're actually going to start off with something very local that we saw here. Um, actually, last week, it was Beckett 16, Nothing Prevents Anything. And I think that title actually really sums up what we're going to talk about on the show today, like a lot about how life can be quite absurd. It might get a little bit political, especially since today is November the 9th. It's 20, day one. 2016. <laughs> And if you are uncomfortable with that sort of topic, we will be giving a warning. You can feel free to listen to something else. But if you want to kind of stay here with us and let's talk about how politics affects art, does art affect politics? Is art a manifestation of life on stage or does it mean nothing? We're going to find out right now with Becca 16. So Josh, you went to go see it. Yeah, I did. I saw it on the uh, closing night on, on Saturday. Mm -hmm. um, it's uh, composed of, of three different Beckett plays. There's Breathe, uh, which is uh, like incredibly short play, 23 seconds, um, but it's also an incredibly relevant one. Mm -hmm. um, it was uh, you know, famously um, realized by, uh, by Damien Hirst, the artist, the, the y, part of the YBA, uh, some years ago. Uh, the second play was Nacht und Traum, mm -hmm. um, which was a made-for-television made for um, play. Uh, it was definitely the the most engaging and kind of the most, um, I mean, it, it was the one, it was the funniest and it had a lot of uh, kind of maybe relatable or more that you could sink your teeth into. Mm -hmm. um, and then the the third play was uh, What Where. Uh, this was the very last play that Beckett wrote um, before he died. Mm -hmm. um, it is very bleak. Yeah. Well, I actually saw it on opening night, and you said you saw it on closing night. So we have a lot to discuss on the actual kind of format of Beckett 16. And for people who don't know, it does run annually. Uh, this is Beckett 16 because it's uh, 2016. Hopefully there will be a Beckett uh, 17. But uh, speaking with Breathe, which is apparently the shortest play in the history of theater at 23 seconds, how did you feel about it? Um... Yeah, well, I, I really do like Breathe, and I, I like um, I like the play a lot. I think it's great. I mean, as, as much mm -hmm. as you can like a 23-second play, I guess. Uh, uh, one of the things that I found interesting um, was that knowing the play also, like having having like actually seen um, uh, what Beckett wrote in the stage directions, mm -hmm. um, I know that a big part of Breathe was that um, it's supposed to be um, – he, he instructs uh, a horizontal plane. He wants a horizontal mm -hmm. plane of trash and, and garbage as the setting and, and this horizontal plane of, of basically junk. Yeah. Um, and he instructs in his stage directions very 
uh, clearly no vertical lines. He's very meticulous about his stage directions. And it's, there's tons of contentious issues about his stage directions. There's tons of uh, controversy over the way that his plays are realized. Yep. It's kind of like walking edge shows, but people do it very purposefully as well, and they, they mess with him. I mean, they mess with the stuff, and, yep. and that's interesting, and, and that's exactly what happened here in Beck at 16. Uh, what it was, it was a, 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 a ball hanging from a string going mm-hmm. down, and then back up, so it was only vertical lines, essentially. Yeah. Um, so it was very purposely kind of uh, going against his his stage directions, and I, I thought it was I thought it was really well done. I thought like like the play more broadly. I think it was it was really uh, an incredible uh, realization of, of of Beckett's ideas. Mm-hmm. How did you feel about? So, so the, the the play is what exactly? It's um, <laughs> there's an audio component, which is one long breath. Yep. Um, that takes place over 23 seconds. Um, and uh-huh. that's accompanied with a visual element, um, which, um, you know, as per his stage directions, is, is kind of this expanse of trash and, and, and waste. Um, mm-hmm. But the way that it was realized here that's was this kind of black yeah. and then with this one single white ball. For me, when I saw that image, it reminded me of, like, the throat I don't know what that... I totally forgot that weird muscle that oh, you Oh, uvula. Thank uvula? you, uvula. I knew it started with a U, but I was like... I don't know what it is. It reminded me that, especially when you're breathing, it coming down and coming back up. It reminded me of like an expansive of the right, mouth. Yeah. What about you? What did you see in that? Yeah, I mean, um, I, I, I'm, I'm not sure. I, I definitely think um, part of Beckett for me, and part of this play especially, was, was in a sense letting it wash over you, and, and it's yeah. a way of reading Beckett. It's a way of, of, of watching Beckett. Um, do you spend your time looking for meaning? And I think that we are, we kind of. Uh, impulsively, uh, you know, scan these plays for meaning and, and try to uh, derive something from them. And and I think that uh, with Beckett, part of it is kind of getting lost in the confusion, mm-hmm. um, it, at least for me. And that that's where I always kind of uh, end up kind of going with Beckett. Um, so yeah, I think that there's a real beauty in the, in that image of of just the throat, right? Yeah. Like just the throat, just what's producing the sound. That's it. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, I think that uh, it was a really soothing image in a way. It was, um, yeah. There, there's a sense uh, with, with uh, Damien Hirst's uh, realization of Brie that's it's really menacing and, and, and uh, it's really sinister, uh-huh. this, this last breath, right? Mm-hmm. Um, there's other readings of it as an as a orgasmic breath. Mm-hmm. Um, but, but I found that this ball hanging by a string in this completely black... Um, stage. I thought it was, yeah, I thought it was really soothing. Now let's talk about like Knock and Trom. How did you feel about that one? Because I have a lot of mixed feelings and I want you to go first. Um, what did I think of Knock und Trom? I, I thought, um, I thought it was quite. I thought it was quite funny. I thought there was there were some real standout performances from from um, the the actors there, uh, especially Deb Pinkman, um, who was who was great. Um, yeah. there, there was. Uh, a, a very kind of funny play on old age, mm-hmm. um, which I thought was interesting that the way she approached that because Beckett, uh, a lot of his plays deal with old age and this very, uh, God, I it's uh, it really hits home for me. I'm so scared of getting old, and so yeah. the way that Beckett plays with old age sort and. Of the- Decay, decrepitness? Yeah, the decrepitness. That the old might, man in pajamas. Yeah, and your mind is going elsewhere uh, kind of thing. Like, uh, the fellow in the wheelchair from Endgame. Yeah. Exactly, yeah. yeah. Uh, um, what's the setup for this knocked on drum? What is the setup? It's. I mean, it's, it's one of those things that's really hard. There's not much of a narrative. It's yeah. hard to explain it. A lot just, of different images. Imagine yeah. the Iliad compared to Breed, though. 
Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. A little absolutely. bit. <laughs> a little bit. Um, what is going on in Nachtentram? Nachtentram, um, the main kind of thrust has to do with, um, and, and correct me if I'm wrong here, I, I may have gotten totally confused, but um, okay. has to do with uh, what happens um, when we dream and also images of um, doctor's offices and yep. um, care, kind of like palliative care and and, yeah, and yeah. care in a hospital setting. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a big kind of, yeah, source of the images there. There was a lot of, uh, there, there were a lot of, like, humorous parts. There's a lot of, like, parts that made people, I think, quite a bit. I think a lot of people like the light puppet show kind of thing. Yeah. That you did with projections. Yeah, let's talk about that. Yeah, because it's quite, like, slapstick. Uh, I totally forgot the doctor's name. Dr. Proctor. That's it. That's right. That's there are a lot of these kind of funny okay, uh, that, plays that sort of on, yeah, bit. right. Mm-hmm. This sort of uh, slapstick humor and the w- w- use of screens, right? Yeah, they had a kind of a shadow uh, puppet play almost that, mm-hmm. that came up. Um, it was really cool because they played a lot with dimension, uh, especially with how far you go into the light and how back you go into the light. It either cr- makes your form much bigger on the screen or compresses it. So they were able to use that for a dramatic effect. They use a lot of the shadow because it's all, again, shadow puppetry to uh, cut open a... Uh, a, a patient's like head and like check what's inside so audiences were laughing as like a little mouse comes out and stuff like that like just basically like you know kind of huh. like funny humor and, and, and it was okay. interesting too to see this um yeah very kind of slapstick juvenile kind of um uh shadow play uh and then the same screens being used in the following um, kind mm-hmm. of uh, sequence with a uh, uh, as a as a pro- projection screen for film. Yeah. And 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 a big thing about uh, what really interests me about Beckett and and um, I think that one of the one of the defining characteristics of, of Beckett's lasting legacy is the way that he anticipated and the way that he thought about media. Yeah. Um, and especially when you when you play with screens in this way, mm-hmm. um, the, the, you can do a lot. You can think through some of these uh, some of these. Uh, kind of issues a lot, and, and particularly you had this um, video segment um, during Nacht und Traum uh, that was um, two screens, uh, two video segments, kind of this dual screen thing going on, which which I think, um, yeah, again, this this issue of dimension, right? So these screens set at different angles, mm-hmm. and, and what does that what does that kind of mean, and, and and how can we think about watching a play that was made for television? realized on a stage in front of us. This play was made for television. It was. It was. Okay. And the thing that I felt when I saw it, I, I know that there was actually a, a few people behind me, they're like, what is going on? And they're like whispering. But um, the, the thing is, with the different screens you know, in front of us, it really felt like it was kind of like this is a different plane of uh, existence for the person. So if people uh, want a bit of a uh, context to what they did, the actor basically kind of put his hands down and like set his head down and then the same image was um projected and then in this one the actor um kind of interacted with a hand that came from off screen but the main screen uh he was still again face down like assuming that i'm, I'm what i'm assuming is that he's sleeping so it kind of showed like what i thought like a dream self or again a separation of body and mind and and you know uh, also worth noting that the character carrying out these actions in the video was a very old, decrepit man. Old men, yeah. A lot oh, okay, of so... yeah. A lot of the characters that Beckett liked to portray are old. Mm-hmm. And Beckett himself only uh, 
kind of started coming into his own as a writer or at least getting uh, recognition as a writer during his 40s and there was all that mm-hmm. always that kind of anxiety of, of being past your prime mm-hmm. um, I think it's a really big part of it um, yeah I think that uh, in the same way that the screens were used um, there was some really great choreography work and really yes. good blocking mm-hmm. and and um, yeah, there, there, they, the sage space was used in a lot of really interesting ways. Um, I also love the ways they used it with props, too. And as you mentioned, the way they used the sage, remember how they had little um, doors from the floor that they opened up, and you'd only see their head. And Beckett was really kind of obsessed with heads a little bit. He was really obsessed with heads. Right. They had that one play where all the, all, all the actors, you could see their head because the rest of them was in a pot or something. Or you mean like in, like in a, I think it was like a sand dune. Yeah, it's no, called I, Happy Days. No, I'm thinking of a different one. Oh, you know, you're it was three a different sort one. Of, sort of a love triangle between three people who can't turn their heads and they're just sort of in giant va- vases. I never knew how to pronounce that word. It's on the cover of a collection of short Beckett plays. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, he's really interested in like head. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Uh, evidently, what's going on in there, considering the, the mouse and what have you. Mm-hmm. And what did you feel about what where? Uh, yeah, what where again? I, I was really drawn. What's the name of the play? I thought you were just confused. No, no, oh, no, no. What where is the name of the play? Not okay, not good. just a, a sign for confusion. Uh, um, yeah, what where was? Uh, again, I was really drawn to the use of um, of different forms of media on stage during what where it was. Mm-hmm. Uh, the the kind of focal point was a. A big speaker um, that was that had an audio track pre-recorded that was kind of leading the action. So mm-hmm. a voice coming from the void, um, and I thought that that was that was um, that was really well done. And there was a lot of I mean I think that there's a lot of interesting uh, resonances this morning, uh, November 9th, just in the same way where I think that there's a lot of interesting resonances yeah. with an old man, a uh, you know the the kind of maybe fear mm-hmm. of uh, or anxiety that uh, comes with old age, um, but but yeah, getting getting a little bit ahead of myself there. Uh, That's it, right. in, in any case, um, yeah, what where was was very bleak and very senseless and and repetitive and and had this kind of a tautological um, thing going on. Um, and and yeah, I want to bring back maybe to a conversation of of what what to do with. Mm-hmm. the disorientation that hits you with Beckett. What can you make of, of that disorientation? I mean, yeah, like you were saying, people mm-hmm. maybe weren't responding to it super well. I think people were getting lost in the repetition. They're like, well, they're just repeating the same thing. They're doing the same thing over and over again. What does it mean? And the thing is, we kind of forget that we do things in our life repeatedly over and over again and doesn't have any meaning at all. It's just a routine that one goes through. I think a difference, though, with, uh, with Beckett as opposed to, say, uh, somebody like Tom Stoppard or Harold Pinter who mm-hmm. do similar things yes. with repetition, with absurdity, is that Beckett uh, wanted to remove characterization. Yeah. And he does that. Does he do that in these plays? Is, it, is that sort of happening? I feel that with what where it really did happen. The characters were very indistinguishable from one another, especially with the very low lighting, the mm-hmm. costuming, which was all robes of black. And mm-hmm. the speaker goes, you know, I, but we don't know which particular I the speaker is referring to. Right. Basically, Nacton Tram was the only one with any real, yeah, tangible characters. Um, Dr. Proctor. The Dr. Proctor. Right, named characters, I guess, would be another way of thinking about okay. it. Because mm-hmm. um, Vladimir and Estragon in, in Waiting for Godot, which is the quintessential Beckett play, right. are notable because they're supposed to be, to an extent, interchangeable. 
they they do both say odd things, but they don't really say them endemic much of characterization. And that makes it hard to relate. And I think that's a challenge with Beckett. Um, for me, it makes him hard to, to read and to see because there's nothing to latch on to. I'm, I'm, I'm not that complex a thinker. I kind of need a characterization. Right. I, I think that that was one thing that I was thinking about throughout the course of this play was just the challenges of Beckett. It is really mm-hmm. hard to put that on stage. I, I mean, how do you go about doing that? There, there's incredible challenges uh, that come up when you're trying to stage Beckett and when you're trying to trying to watch him too. I think that um, a big part of it though, like, um, you know, this idea of ritual and, and repeti- mm-hmm. repetition, and I think that there is actually something we can uh, grasp there if we if we let ourselves kind of get carried away with it. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I, I, I think that that's what makes Beckett, Beckett's work really... Uh, enlivening for me and I, I feel it's there's a lot of energy there even if there is no real characterization mm-hmm. and uh beckett uh, you mentioned this before his plays have a lot of stage direction rather like uh <laughs> maybe it's an irish thing george yeah. bernard shaw did that too um which is to an extent i think to, to um a complaint i've heard about it is that it it really takes the director's role away but in this case, that's evidently not the case. Evidently, there's been a, a reworking of it. No, uh, director Gerard Vanderwood did a very good job okay. in um, kind of um, taking the mm. separate Beckett plays and kind of, I, well, I felt they were really cohesive. I like the way that he used the light from the beginning and the end. There was a single uh, light on like a light bulb that mm-hmm. uh, was shining right in the middle. We have all these figures passing through from one side of the stage to another side of the stage. They're dressed in all black. We're all wondering what the light is about. They pull the light with them, one of them, and um, then the show kind of starts, and then we go back to this one light again, and then the actors go from one stage to the other side again, and then the show ends. And I thought that was a very nice way to bookend it. Right. I think that, yeah, uh, just a note on that, that was that was uh, the director kind of took, yeah, took this creative liberty to have these bookending pieces, mm-hmm. uh, these kind of choreographies that I thought were really well done. And, and yeah, absolutely. I, I think part of it, too, when you're looking at what uh, Beckett, this, this Beckett series at UBC, is that it's meant to be a really social thing, and it's meant to, to be kind of a, a community production, too. Um, so in, in that sense, um, the director takes on this role in maybe mediating that, um, and, and yeah, maybe that does involve going against Beckett's wishes. So um, would you say the director's job would be more of a custodian or more of a re-envisioner <laughs> of it, sort of, which is sort of an odd thing whenever this, this amount of happens um, in, in a play is whether or not to be a custodian of the original text or to try and work around it to make it into something else. Yeah, I think that there was, I think that there was definitely a, an, a sense in which Beckett was reimagined here. Um, I mean, thinking about the custodian, the idea of a custodian, too, and, and thinking about the stage, um, the stage was very blank, um, and we could mm-hmm. actually see into the backstage area. There wasn't a really a, a solid mm-hmm. divide between the stage and the backstage area. Um, and the way things that were moved around on stage, um, there was there was a real sense for me that um, maybe there was a, a, a kind of... Yeah, I don't know. I like that image of a custodian with this space as well, somebody yes. that's tending to the space, and that's also a kind of yeah. a, a, a a kind of Beckettian, Beckettian, yeah. I guess, idea of somebody that tends to a space. Um, so I, I think I see I see a resonance of of a curatorial role with this director as well. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, I think that the director was overall really amb- like ambitious 
with what they did. They mm-hmm. they did really they went all out and and defied Beckett's stage directions. They didn't you know um, half defy them. It was it was they took those liberties. Mm-hmm. And one thing I really really liked with uh, Vanderwood's work is again like all the different mediums that he put together and he did it cohesively. Absolutely. Some people they try to do so much things at once. Like Andy, you remember when we went to that shadow puppet thing and you were like, oh, these projections on that. What, what kind of project- projector was it? Like Just like an overhead projector. Overhead projector. We were like, why? It really hurts our eyes. But the way that he did it, he knew what he wanted, and he got the best lighting design from uh, Nicole Weissmiller, got the best projection design from Matthew Norman, and the cinematographer, uh, Chelsea Chen, did a wonderful job as well. Uh, they all worked together in making sure all these separate pieces that you know people would be like, what, how are they you know, going to flow from one, one another? They did it so flawlessly. It, it was re- they yeah I think they pulled it off I think that at the end of the day there I, I really did walk away thinking okay that was that worked in a sense mm-hmm. um, well again if people you want to see it too bad you missed it but you missed it next year I'm sad that I missed it you know uh, yeah sorry babe that was the nineteenth year of Beckett at UBC mm-hmm. next oh year so this is quite be, a tradition have they yeah. done these plays before because there's only a finite number of Beckett plays you can really do I'm I'm actually not entirely sure mm-hmm. uh, I'm I, I I'm under the impression that they change them every year mm-hmm. they um, do change them every year but i don't know if they've done i don't know what their itinerary has been like yeah they might do a cycle because again you said there are a finite number of plays but this actually wasn't quite long so if you wanted to sit through a beckett piece but you're like i don't want to go through like godot or whatever th- like beckett uh, 17 next year could be your thing again it's always at the freddie wood you have these wonderful alums coming in and, and presenting their craft and uh it, again, it's it's um it's here at UBC if you're interested in that. You know what I'd like to see? What? Endgame. I'd like to see Endgame. That's a, that's that's it. Got some of the best closing lines of any play. There is so much to Endgame that uh, yeah. that I feel like is very relevant to how I feel right now. That depends on the setting. That depends on how you envision the setting. That's true. Anyways, uh, thank you so much, Josh, for your in-depth report on Pegasus 16. Um, Arts Report listeners, uh, just so you know, we will be back after these short messages. Don't go anywhere. Unless you don't want to hear political talk, then you can go a little elsewhere. But we promise we will make sure that everything is cohesive and also kind of uh, working together. Anyways, thanks so much. Discorder, a magazine from CITR 101.9 FM, presents a showcase of emerging Vancouver-based hip-hop artists Friday, November 18th at the Media Club. The lineup is comprised of some of the most talked about and should be talked about hip-hop artists in Vancouver. Including So Loki, Missy D, Romy, Something August, Spotty Joseph, and Freeman Young, with CITR's Crimes and Treasons DJing and MCing this 19 plus event. We them boys! Be sure to come check us out. We're Crimes and Treasons Radio. We're gonna be hosting and DJing at the Media Club. Be sure to come check us out. Crimes and Treasons. For more information and tickets, visit discorder.ca. Want to know what's up at UBC? Read the UBC. It's only the largest student newspaper in Western Canada, and it's written and edited entirely by UBC students. The UBC is your source for on-campus news, culture, and sports. 
New editions come out every Monday and Thursday. For breaking news as well as amazing videos and blogs, check out ubc.ca. And welcome back to the Arts Report. I am your host, Ashley Park. You are listening to CATR Radio 101.9 FM, broadcasting from unceded Musqueam Territory in Vancouver. Today, I am joined by the lovely... Jake Clark. And Andy Ta. Yep, and uh, this part of the um, show is going to get a little political. We're going to talk about what happened here at UBC. <laughs> We're going to talk about what happened <sighs> to our neighbor... <laughs> Our neighboring country. Well, and you, you know what I realized? What? We're we're the most insured country in the world, living upstairs from the most medicated and one of the best armed countries in the world. It's like we're Ned Flanders living above Begbie from train spotting. Oh, you're right. And this is how it feels right now. And we're going to try to uh, make sure scary. that it, it, it does connect to, you know, your local arts and culture. And the reason why I chose Beckett to kind of preface us is the idea of the absurd, the idea that reality the generation is kind of like weirder than you know some things that are just fiction yeah, truth is stranger yeah. than fiction nothing prevents anything that's exactly what you know this, the show subtitle was nothing prevents anything and let's talk about what happened at ubc last night well so at ubc last night at the international lounge there was a broadcast of the election from cnn mobile mm -hmm. and the election coverage um if you want to tie this in immediately to arts and leisure is something on par it's been compared to pro wrestling and reality tv and yeah. it's, it's about that in terms of content and i don't like either of those things but <laughs> at least other people addictiveness because it it really is a strange and voyeuristic event to watch mm -hmm. this when you have no participation and we don't but there are a lot of them there are americans who go to ubc and i was talking to one of them jackson lovely guy and we were talking about the possibility of the win and Gradually, we realized the likelihood of it. Like, first Ohio, then Florida. You know, no presidents ever won without Ohio. So mm -hmm. when it came around to it, this, this guy Jackson did say something very, very apt about voting for Donald Trump as a protest vote, mm -hmm. which is something just because people are angry. Yeah. Voting for Donald Trump because you're angry at the political process is like trying to disperse an annoying line at an amusement park by firing a handgun in the air. Mm -hmm. It'll work but it's going to cause more harm than good. It's a petty response. Mm -hmm. Michael Moore said the same thing. And Michael Moore's from Michigan, mm -hmm. where the overwhelming, like Michigan would either go for Trump or Sanders. It wouldn't go for Clinton because yeah. Michigan is full of very angry people who, have career, who predominantly have careers in the auto industry. Mm -hmm. And that's one thing that's got the rug yanked out from under them. And that, that sort of resentment, that sort of seething resentment fueled this. And what, I, what happened as I was watching this was, I've, um, you've probably heard the term alt-right bandied around in a few sources, and I've... Yeah, it, it's been something that's been popping up, like, I think just, like, like it's not, it has been around, but more of it being mentioned happened in 2015, 2016. Trump has brought them in to legitimize them a lot, and not all of the uh, people who are identified with the alt-right are necessarily bad people, but I mean, it's... they are internet Nazis, basically. Well, that's... Uh, yeah, is some of them are, and, like, the thing is that, you know, Meninism, right? So say Meninism's on the one side. Then you got the Red Pill Reddit and its adherence on, a little bit farther down. Mm -hmm. Then you've got Breitbart News. Mm -hmm. Then sl slightly farther down the line, you've got Alex Jones and his ilk. Mm -hmm. A little farther down the line, you've got Dark Enlightenment. Mm -hmm. And then you've got the KKK. <laughs> it's a clean progression uh. because the, uh, the, the, it becomes crazier. And all these things are 
parts of the alt-right and I've I've kept abreast of Mennonism for a while because I find it I find it strange I because mm-hmm. it's fueled by people who are in my same demographic primarily mm-hmm. I just don't get it like it's just something I don't inherently get it's yeah. it's it's a weird thing to me but I've kept abreast of it because of that this sort of bile fascination and the the same language a lot of the time, if you play, if you play bingo with these people, because there is a bingo thing out there, yes. uh, cuck is the free space, is the word for cuckold or mm-hmm. cuckservative, yeah. and, um, which is their, how they believe the conservative establishment is. And the implication of that is that you're a straight white guy who likes seeing their wife banged by black guys. And with all the unfortunate implications of that, being that, of that as a negative and that as a term of slander. Mm-hmm. And these... They're very tech. They're very tech literate. That's often said of them. They're very vocal, and their status as a vocal minority, it it is somewhat true. But they are a young movement. They're a young movement going off older forms. But people like um, Jared Taylor, for example, who uh, runs American Renaissance or Amren, which is a think tank based around finding racial differences in intelligence and ability. Uh, notably, actually, a white supremacist who is not anti-Semitic. Oh, at least openly, he fosters anti-Semitism, but he is not one himself. Mm-hmm. Um, was a leader in this regard in the '90s and 2000s, and other other movements have occurred too across the world that typify a similar school of thought in recent years. Marie, Marie Le Pen in France, Golden Dawn in Greece has actually picked up a little bit of speed, and they uh, their symbol is close enough to a swastika that if Hitler were still alive, he'd probably sue for plagiarism as John Oliver put it. And uh-huh. there's also Ramsey Paul, who's an internet comedian in his mid-40s who makes jokes for these people. He He's basically their chosen comedian. And um, there are it's, it's, it's a shticky style of comedy, but it is yeah. working. And all these people contribute to this sort of complex, which leads to something like Red Ice Radio, which is a collection of people who spread... Basically, they do have neo-Nazis on there, and they do spread neo-Nazi beliefs. Mm-hmm. To a degree, and the degree to which they do that, and direct is is debatable, but all these people are connected by an association to that, and I think this is best depicted by Glenn Beck. Now, Glenn Beck, nobody's going to accuse of having a surplus of sanity or respectability, but Glenn Beck has actually made a bit of an about face in recent years because he's horrified by this. Yeah, he he realizes that he's helped create this, mm-hmm. and he is frightened by this upsurge. He's a never-Trumper. And I wanted to ask about that in what you mentioned with the idea of, like, creating something like this that we all kind of thought was absurd, that we thought was, like, satire, that we thought was all going to be, like, like you know, a joke, and it became kind of a reality. And um, one quote that I particularly liked yesterday night that Stephen Colbert said was, you cannot laugh and be afraid at the same time. The devil cannot stand mockery. And for me, I, I wanted to ask, like, all these, we, we had a lot of responses to Trump kind of, like, um, being part of the presidential kind of election through, like, arts and culture, too. Like, there was, you know, kind of, like, you know, skits that he did on TV and whatever with, like... Um, it, was, it was a great year for comics, like, uh, for yeah. comedians. Like, just, it's easy material. But then it became too easy. Yeah, even Alec at, Baldwin even got burnt out. Even at Fringe, we had... Um, a musical called, like, you know, Trump the Musical and stuff like that, like, in which it felt like the lines between politics and theater were really blurring, that um, 
now politics really does feel like, you know, a huge kind of thing on stage, except it's real. <laughs> Andy, your thoughts? Um, I mean, the worst possible thing that could have happened yesterday happened, right? Yeah. Pretty much. And also, like, this idea that comedy will save us, right? Yeah. This kind of Stephen Colbert, this kind of John Stewart style of comedy where you're laughing at these, this kind of thing. Clearly, it, it doesn't work, right? It doesn't work. He, he said not, he couldn't be happy anymore. This is, not meaning, this is not like a meaningful way of doing politics where yeah. you're laughing away like this kind of figure, ultimately. No, and it's a refusal to take him seriously that let him do it. And it was irresponsible, I think. A lot of my, if I want to pick somebody to blame here, I don't necessarily blame Donald Trump. I don't blame his supporters. I blame the people who enabled him, which is the media, which is people like on his side, Sean Hannity, or people who are actually against him. But the point is, love him or hate him, there's publicity, and there's no such thing as bad publicity, even apparently in a presidential race, which is a terrifying thought. Mm-hmm. Because the most colorful candidate, it's, it's said last night, he's running the place according to the rules of mimetic epidemiology and reality television, mm-hmm. which, is, which destroys the political process, which destroys the process of election required for a functioning democracy, mm-hmm. and, or at least holds it in great contempt. But he was enabled in that regard. And I find this interesting because yesterday the Free Speech Club, which is a club at UBC. Yep, it's a club at UBC. uh, Was outside our nest Mm -hmm. selling uh, Trump merchandise, Make America Great Again and Make Canada Great Again hats. Really? That's interesting. What what color were the hats? Red. Red. And the funny thing is Vancouver Canucks baseball caps, I think, are going to take a bit of a dent in sales, which is unfortunate. I have one of those. Okay. But uh, the thing was... They, I talked to them. Uh, they were very, very nice. And there is um, the leadership of the club, I believe, is conservative-leaning. Yeah. But there are people of all alignments there. And mm-hmm. their argument, the argument, the point which stuck with me is that if Hillary was unpopular here, they'd be stocking her merch. Mm-hmm. Which, that, you know what? I, I actually like that. I do. Because contrarianism is part of free speech, mm-hmm. to a degree, just to figure out how far it's going to go. And in this case, th- this is an element of... You know, we and they they said they don't necessarily support Trump, yeah. But that this gesture is to affirm free speech, and I found that interesting because I don't believe Donald Trump believes in the same set of civil liberties that would entail that because he wants to make it legal to sue people who disagree with you more or less and who will accuse you of something that really isn't. He has that. the power to do more now. <laughs> mm-hmm. He's. I, I think his presidency, yeah. if he allows it to be, will be a very vindictive organization, and. Like I know Mac Miller, he tried to sue over a line in a song, mm-hmm. which is which is which is which is fair. Like it, it, it's fair use it, it, in that. Like you, it's really hard to accuse somebody of libel for a work for an artistic work. Yeah. When they're when they're saying their opinion, mm-hmm. you can't like libel is a misrepresentation of fact. You can't libel some. You can't accuse somebody of libel for saying a, stating a subjective opinion. Yes. But he wants to make it legal to do that, which would, to if if that precedent is set. That would more or less invalidate free speech. That would create a climate of fear. Uh, and it would create a, a climate of fear even more erratic than if the government was attempting to censor speech because there is absolutely no rules other than the att- other than the suit that can be brought. And bringing a suit to court, being able to bring a suit to court, whether or not it wins, will still devastate somebody in terms of legal fees in the states. Mm-hmm. And that that ability is terrifying to me. So I found that an odd but paradoxical thing, and that's also a thing that can be afforded to be done here because those repercussions would not be felt here. So that gesture here does not 
is not self-undermining. And I, I, I think it was a fair gesture. I think it, it I, 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 I couldn't object to it, mm-hmm. but I found it interesting in light of that. Mm-hmm. I know that um, strangely, not strangely, probably very normally, the Immigration, Refugees, and Citizenship Canada website crashed last night. It crashed. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I was watching the, uh, the CBC of the election coverage because I'm Canadian. I yes. was like, oh, I want to. I want the Canadian version. You want of this. the? We want the Canadian version. Like, That's how right. will this affect us? This guy <laughs> lives right underneath us. Yeah, and and they mentioned that. Like I said, Ned Flanders living upstairs from Begbie. Mm-hmm. But like, it's really hard to to immigrate to Canada. It's not a solution, honestly. Yeah. It's like really difficult to immigrate to Canada, mm-hmm. even if you are from the states. It's yeah. just not a viable way for we might get for Miley most Cyrus. people. Mm-hmm. Like, yeah. Um, Another thing, interesting thing I thought about here, which is, this has occurred to me just a little bit ago, was on the show, when we covered VIF, I saw a movie called The Student. Yes. Which is made in Russia. Mm-hmm. And there were a lot of odd parallels there. Mm-hmm. Um, the Student is a movie which, is, it's, it's, it's a movie about religion, not politics. Mm-hmm. I mean, it plays into some politics, but it is about religion. But there are parallels to be drawn here. It was directed by Kirill Serebrenikov, I think is his name. Mm-hmm. Um I'm sorry, sir, you made a great movie. I'm sorry if I butcher your name or the names of any of your cast. They all did a bang-up job. Uh, and it basically has this student, uh, Venya, who becomes a religious fanatic. And I never know why. He becomes an extremely – he's very well-read in his Bible. And it's sort of cra- – he's crazy. Like, he's psychotic uh, about his faith. But he's also clever enough with it. And he does these – he performs these antics like he – he says that oh, it's um, it's uh, indecent for women to for girls to wear bikinis during swim class. They have to wear one piece suits. And the administration cowtoes. They they don't do that for the guys, just the girls, because of course. And um, he also he goes ballistic in biology class a few times. Once during sex ed for obvious reasons. Once when evolution is taught again for obvious reasons. The guy's re- wrecking the room in an ape suit. Mm-hmm. And the guy who plays this guy, uh, Pyotr Sv- Sv- Svortsov, I, 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 I'm sorry, sir. Your performance is amazing. Uh, he, he plays this guy as being very intelligent, very well-spoken, mm-hmm. very noticeably crazy. He looks like somebody dehydrated Henry Rollins a little bit in terms of the way he dresses, even his delivery at times. Yep. And this figure, though, is sort of a figure that would do this, is sort of an alt-rightish figure. He's a young man. He lives a very bleak life because mm-hmm. he, he lives in Russia. Yep. That, that's, that's, the st- that's the size of it there. And he holds this teacher, the biology teacher, Elena Krasnova, in contempt, and uh, played by Victoria Isakova. Mm-hmm. I think I think I got that one correct. Yep. And she is, uh, she's educated. Mm-hmm. She's female. She's of, she's of Jewish descent, but she's an atheist. In short, everything that the extreme of the alt-right vitriolically hates. Yeah. And very, very visibly. Like, the, the scariest thing about the alt-right that I've seen is a rise in anti-Semitism mm-hmm. and the use of those, um, use of those... <sighs> images mm-hmm. al franken actually pointed that out talking about trump's campaign ads and even then even the parallel continues with this this priest uh, who is sort of he is not the, the priest in the movie i mentioned is an enabler he's not doesn't necessarily approve him but he kind of wants to recruit him and that guy could be sort of an analogous to the uh conservative point because venya holds him in absolute contempt mm-hmm. but he, the guy still kind of encourages him. And the people around him let Venya do more or less as he wishes, uh, culminating like, because they, they don't take him seriously. And 
even if they did, he affirms prejudices that they themselves have. Yes. Just don't express, which is what I believe happened with the election. That's how the general electorate, because the alt-right does not represent the general electorate, not by a long shot, not, mm-hmm. not, not even remotely. But I think a lot of people had that sort of lizard brain prejudice spoken to, yeah. and that motivated a, the country to turn its vote, turn close to half of its vote, half of its popular vote towards a man who is probably going to be a tyrant. And Andy, you and I, we kind of like talked last night, like, albeit a little jokingly after like the the panic kind of like set in. We were kind of like, ha ha ha, we were, we were so screwed. Like it was kind of like, you know, like right when the, um, I, I know that I, I was in the beginning, I was kind of like, ah, it's okay. Like it'll, it'll be fine. I don't need to check the election. Wake Everyone up. told me it'll be fine. And I, and I believe them. I believe them for like the last two months. I yeah. was like, okay. Well, you have to. Yeah, <laughs> but then that was the problem Be- because you're telling everyone that everything is fine. The people who really do feel disenfranchised, they go like, "No, everything is not fine." Right, exactly, and that's one of the big problems. Like, it turns out that you can't rely on this um, on demographics alone, actually, mm-hmm. which is what everyone said. You know, you know, the demographics aren't right for for a Trump president, right? There's like too many people who's offended. But it turns out, no, you actually have to make some inroads with everyone, and you can't just say everything's good now. Mm-hmm. Don't vote for the other guy. He's really scary. Mm-hmm. I, th- I think Clinton acting like the vote was in the bag probably did do some of that. I don't blame her for that. I, I, I really don't. I mean, I, I think I do. This is this election should have been in the bag for a, for a most lot, people. I think a lot of us thought that. A lot of us thought that from the get-go. A lot of us thought that during the primaries. A lot of us thought that during – even when we've been bombarded this information for a year and a half. Like I, I'm, I'm at the point already where I'm sick of hearing that name. I am. I'm sick of. I'm. I, I, I'm. I'm sick of hearing the name Trump. I'm sick of hearing a lot of these names mm-hmm. in my news feed because I just can't take it anymore. The saturation is sort of turning just pound into my skull like a Skrillex beat. It's an. It's insane. <laughs> to actually uh, counter yeah. counter what you guys are uh, thinking, um, I actually thought, and I, and I was. I hated that I was right when she got the nomination. I looked at my dad, and my dad looked at me, and then he said, "We're gonna, we're gonna lose." Yeah, well, you're, you're American, yeah. So yeah, I, I got it. I got my dad there and my mom there, and uh, he was looking at me like, "Oh boy." He just like raised his hands like, "Oh boy," and I'm like, "Dad, why? Like, it's okay. First female president." He's like, "No, it's not gonna work. We, not that she's female. It's just like it's, it's not going to work because right now people are too angry. Mm-hmm. People are too angry, so they want." to vote with their anger and um, yeah. people don't want to vote out of fear they want to vote out of anger yeah, um, yeah. fear makes people angry too yeah but fear is a force of paralysis anger is a force of action and the, <laughs> As... thing, the thing is um from for me we live on the coast the coast is usually blue coast will always be yeah blue. yeah it was all blue in this election too yeah because coast is mixed with minorities a lot Sure. They're always on the coast. A mm-hmm. lot of uh, hom- homogeneity. I can't see the word. Of race. Yeah, hom- thank you, Andy. That was me. Oh, yeah. Jake. <laughs> I guess it's because I was looking at you. I got to turn to look at you now. Okay, great. You, you may do that, yes. Yeah. We're over the radio, so I don't think it matters. <laughs> right? But um, it, it's the coasts are always going to be more mixed. It's just the, the middle. And then the middle is actually what got affected really, really hard by a lot of the things that, you know, you know, happened with, you know, bailouts, like recession, stuff like that. And for all the talk that Obama saved um, the auto industry in Detroit, it turns out it wasn't enough, right? Mm -hmm. A lot of those people did not vote for 
for the Democrats this time around. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And that's that's auto industry, Rust Belt, uh, yeah, Rust agrarian Belt. to a, to an extent. Well, Utah, Utah was going to go a certain way for reasons we all are aware of. Utah was interesting to me because I saw the charts, and that mm-hmm. was the only one where a third party was leading, which was Evan McMullen. Yeah. And Evan McMullen had tie with Hillary Clinton for about a little less than 22%, and Trump was leading with over 50 mm-hmm. which I found fascinating because Mormons are a strange voting block. <laughs> it's a strange religion, and it's a strange voting block. But if you're a Mormon and you— If you're a Mormon, that's, that's just— that that is not a value judgment. I'm just saying I I find it strange as a person who is themselves irreligious and ill-informed at best about Mormonism. Mm-hmm. But it's it the vote there. I was wondering if only the Mormon vote was voting for Evan McMullen mm-hmm. and only that Mormon vote because he catered specifically to that. He is himself a Mormon, and the remainder of Utah was just read by association. Mm-hmm. Or if Evan McMullen was swaying a small part of the Mormon vote and a small part of the general vote. Mm-hmm. And the majority of Mormon vote was going to Trump, which I, I found a little dubious because Mitt Romney's a never Trumper, and Mitt yeah. Romney's a, probably one of the most influential Mormons in the states. He also. is. He's quite influential. Mm-hmm. And um, speaking of third party, and this was actually brought to me by uh, one of my classes today, and they were talking about the election, and somebody, of course, blamed you know third party and stuff like that. And I can understand like the anger towards third party but i think no. andy and i discussed it last night andy would you like to do like would you like to talk about third party i mean this idea that third parties like um are stealing votes or whatever doesn't necessarily make sense especially like if you consider like gary johnson right mm-hmm. the, the gary johnson voter which is much much maligned who exactly oh sorry that's just his no that's his reaction to aleppo i'm sorry <laughs> <laughs> but like Typical Gary Johnson voter is going to be more conservative than uh, liberal, right? Because mm-hmm. it's yeah. you know there's not that many like Democrats who are libertarians. It, I, it's I would Ron say. Paul's voter base, more right. or less. Yeah. But there was really startling data that this came from the Guardian uh, not too long ago, actually. That it it wasn't mostly it was not third party. It was you know white voters who make up sixty nine percent of the total voted fifty eight percent for Trump and thirty seven percent for Clinton. Non white mm-hmm. voters, minorities who make up thirty one percent of the electorate voted 74% for Clinton and 21% for Trump. Right. And, of course, you know, men, white men opted 63 for Trump, 31 for Clinton. But women, and we were talking about this last night, white women voted 53% for yeah. Trump, 43% for Clinton. I read that too, which is... That's a really interesting statistic, right? Mm-hmm. I, it, I... And she only won college-educated women by six points or something like that. Yeah. yeah I'm, I'm maybe not chromosomally... And I mean, these are people who are like who voted for Obama last time around. They were and they were educated. So all this kind of like this talk of like the educated, the niche, you know, people or you know, quote unquote, the like there's this idea racial extremists. It wasn't that. There's this idea that Trump voters are like these kind of you know these hicks, right? Mm -hmm. These like uh, inbred hicks or whatever. This kind of stereotype of, of. of rural America, which is that's not his primary, like that's not his only base. Mm-hmm. It turns out. No, you you don't win the presidency on rural areas alone. Right. And I think that was due to again media, media kind of like coming in and it's, making it's, it's, it seem like yeah, that. Yeah, it's very easy to like just point a camera at one of his rallies and to see all these people like with ill-fitting t-shirts or whatever. Yeah, <laughs> ill-fitting t-shirts, but tight, you know, tight caps. Right. Yeah. And it's like, ah, oh, it's these people, these these dumb like morons who are yeah they they were they kept on calling them uneducated on television right 
and it doesn't really help. You already have a disenfranchised, you know, pool of voters. They feel even more disenfranchised than mocked on TV. Yeah, and I, 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 I like the media coverage of that. I don't understand the anger about the situation because I never lived in that situation. Yeah. But I understand because this has happened to me a couple times being called stupid on live media, mm. and um, that that is deeply infuriating for a lot of people and I can see how that solidifies anger at the media especially media that it is already conceived as being snide and liberal yeah and it, it and they had their front runner and they had you know their nominee you know Hillary up in there so mm-hmm. it just made them go like well they call me uneducated this is the person that you know they're associated with I don't I don't want I don't want her I don't want her she mm-hmm. like you know she's never going to listen to me they they all think I'm uneducated yeah. I mean, it's wild to think that this went from being an election, you know, in the bag for the Democrats mm-hmm. to being maybe the most significant uh, presidential elections in the United States in a generation, right? Yeah, it's probably in a generation. Since, since Reagan yeah. is probably like the biggest, the last big one. Well, since you bring up Reagan. Nothing prevents anything. What I said. Uh, <laughs> it's true. Like that's, it's wild. I just, I, I'm so. Yeah. I just th- never conceived like what would a. Uh, Trump pres- President Trump would look like. I never thought about it really in depth. We have yeah. our first orange president. Yeah. Probably a second gold Russian Canada, you know, for all those letters. Right. Um, the Purge becomes a documentary. That So does Idiocracy. That's fantastic. Mm-hmm. Um, but the funniest thing about this is that Bill Hicks, the comedian, yes. um, highly recommend his stuff. Very funny yeah. man. Yeah. Very influential. <laughs> yeah. hey, questionable a little bit in retrospect, but I find him fun. I find a bit, him a bit questionable. Uh, okay, okay. Yeah. Actually, actually, more than a little questionable. Bad, Proceed bad with politics. caution. Politics. Yeah, but he. Anyway, some people might enjoy. Some people might not enjoy. When Let's Reagan, that. when Reagan got elected for yeah. the first time, Bill Hicks said, "Well, welcome to the dark ages," or something to that effect. That mm-hmm. was that was the gist of it, and that was kind of what I what I felt here. Uh, I, I wanted to say I went to bed at about one a.m. Mm-hmm. last night because I kept trying to figure out a conclusive solution. But I'm watching CNN; they're not going to yield until they know because they do lean liberal. Yeah, they're not going to yield. I mean, until do they, they really though? Like oh. CNN. I don't know about that. I, I, I think depends they, what you define as liberal, right? Let's, let's talk mm. about like the Canadian coverage, though. I mean, American liberal and Canadian liberal—two very different things. Mm-hmm. Let's talk about Canadian coverage, though, uh, especially with now, you know, it's official. Wah, wah. I wish I had one of those things that I click on a button and makes like a sad noise for me. Wah, wah, wah. Thank you. Yeah, it's on cue. That's really good. Mm-hmm. Um, what does it mean for Canada? What does it mean for our arts, for our culture? Because, again, you mentioned we're Ned Flanders. For our culture, I honestly think it's going to help because I um, – this is this is a very cynical way to look at things. And okay. E- even for me. Uh, if helpful um, but cynical? Okay, no, no. If this becomes helpful to us, it's okay. because of brain drain from the south. It's because people come up here to work in a climate that's not uh, – that's either not safe or just morally – Un- unrecognizable for them and a lot of there's a lot of figures there's been a lot of celebrities uh again i mentioned miley cyrus said this and i, I don't know why i remember that above all the others mm-hmm. who said that if trump won they would move to canada um interestingly viggo mortensen is <laughs> going to stay in the states he voted for jill stein yeah um but uh i i find that that could be a cynical benefit uh to us like uh, professionals entertainers stereotypically like liberal liberal aims uh come on up here i mean that won't be good for american culture really in terms of i i presume i presume this is a grandiose point but if they come up here what kind of an embarrassment of riches 
But you know what? Mm. That might actually mean we have production backing in Vancouver, which would be fantastic. I think there's a great danger, I think, uh, for Canadians who are right now overly smug, right? Yeah. About what's happening in the United States. Like me, just now. Like like you just now. Like I'm <laughs> yeah. not no shots, but a little bit. No, no, no. Yeah, I, I, you know I, what I, I mean. Know. Like, because this is the the same reaction that Americans had uh, when they heard about Brexit. Yeah. Right. They're like, oh, this. Huh, you just screwed yourselves, you dumb, you dumb Brits. <laughs> I'm so it happy could, I totally became my own like country. Right. It yeah. could it, it could happen here. And mm-hmm. remember, this is you're from Ontario. You remember our dearly departed. A crack addict mayor. Yep, oh. Rob, Rob Ford. Rob Ford. Kevin, uh, Kevin O'Leary, too, to an extent. Uh, funny thing is, I have a cousin who's actually in business in um, in Toronto. He's a venture capitalist, works very hard, and he said that in the business community, Kevin O'Leary is a joke and not a good one. Mm. He's, he's kind of just, he's ill-qualified, his track record is terrible, and if it weren't for, if it, if it honestly weren't for Dragon's Den, he probably would have had to take a really really kind of fallout of 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 any of a administrative role a long while ago which is Kevin O'Leary is kind of our Donald Trump in many ways and I, I do I do think you're right I do think we have to be vigilant we have to be careful because this is a wave of creeping cretinism the beast of devout in the Philippines golden dawn in Greece and mm-hmm. uh, similar far right parties in Hungary Frexit in in uh, Frexit and Brexit mm-hmm. to an extent people are also like you know kind of like comparing this to when Italy um um, elected Ber- Mussolini. Ber- no, not Mussolini. <laughs> the uh, the oh, uh, clown. oh, Berlusconi. Berlusconi, yeah. the clown. Yeah. <sighs> so it, it's it's it is a thing that for some reason it's really scary. It it seems to be a trend. Mm-hmm. Right, and like Canada's like deciding to elect this kind of centrist liberal government mm-hmm. is actually fairly unique at this point, right? Yeah, it, it's or not unique, but it's like fairly special. It's fairly special, mm. and. I think instead Special, of like, you know, yeah. mourning, even though, yes, yes, it's completely a sea of red. Uh, we, <laughs> we lost House, we lost Senate, we lost the presidency. And I'm laughing, but if I don't laugh, I'll cry. And um, the most important thing is that for Canadians here to figure out that, you know, we need to be more vigilant, we need to t- take things seriously. Right, to take things seriously. I think that's a very important thing. Yeah, even though at, even though it's absurd to you, you have to take it seriously. And I think that's, you know, tying back to Beckett here. Just because it's, like, weird and you don't get it and you laugh at it and you're like, it doesn't mean anything. doesn't mean it's irrelevant. Yeah, mm-hmm. it doesn't mean that it actually means something. So there, there's comic, there's a serious, there's, there's the absurd. Would it, would it be unrealistic to say that this sort of thing, this creeping cretinism, mm-hmm. is related on a misunderstanding of which is what is what? Sort of this this fundamental, either misunderstanding or misapplication of seriousness or of humor. Either you don't take these things seriously and they happen, or the people behind them take them too seriously and extreme things happen as a result. That it's 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 a, it's a perspective. It's a difference of perspective, difference in faculty. It is difference in perspective, and the one thing I'm noticing is that there are two sides, and they're terrified of each other. Mm-hmm. They're terrified of each other, and they are then going like the other person's my enemy. And then they're again voting out of anger, which is not. Which you know, it, I would say for a lot of people, it is is not true. I mm. I have a I have a neighbor who was at least earlier on a, a Trump supporter, and they're they're, st- they're still delightful people. Uh, <laughs> my, and I I, I I don't for a lot of people, you're right. I, I don't think like I'm, it, I'm not saying like we should an attack one another. I'm saying like we should be aware that we are doing it and see yes. the other side as like people, 
instead of like what the media is trying to do again making it seem like these people are like the minority that these people it's like you know they're crazy we shouldn't listen to them because they reacted in a way because they had these problems that they felt weren't being addressed yes and i think i think that is the racism thing that's bad that's bad that's still bad that is really bad and i think the problem is it's hard to separate the extremes from the people who are not and the people who may be complicit in that the people who are just unaware of it and I think if we want to tie this to a role of arts and culture, which I think if there is a role of that, it's to provide communications, to provide an understanding. Mm-hmm. And, and that, is, that, is, that is critical. And I think yeah. the failure of that allowed this to happen. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I have nothing else to say. Really. That was beautiful. Thank you. At least we'll have art. At least we'll have communication. And I hope that mm. what you say is true, that we take things seriously now. And even yeah. if it's completely, completely ridiculous... We go, okay, but what? why is this on stage? Why is this being presented to me? And hopefully that art isn't too smug. Yeah, I hope Because I think we've had enough smugness for this entire, during this election cycle. That's Hold true. on, I got a little bit more. You know, what we could also do is we could get ourselves a bomb shelter, a whole bunch of guns, some Bing Crosby and Dean Martin records, and wait for Fallout to happen. Yeah, yeah we could yeah. do that. Forget the next game, we'll get the real-time experience. Woohoo! All right. That's some 4D gaming right there. Mm-hmm. Socialism is bad. <laughs> I, I actually don't game, so I'm not exactly certain when the next game is coming out or if it is. So, Anyways, thank you so much for joining me on a very special, special broadcast of the Arts Report. This is going to be quite uh, historic for me. And thank you all for listening if you decide to listen to us. Again, I'm your host, Ashley Park. I was joined by these wonderful co-hosts. Jake Clark. And Andy Ta. And again, nothing prevents anything. Take things seriously. Cheers. Ta-ta. Did you do really well in a first or second year course? Want to make a difference in the UBC community and school communities around the world? Join Students Offering Support, or SOS, and become a tutor today. Math, accounting, economics, psychology, engineering courses, French and Spanish, statistics, and more. If you aced it, Students Offering Support wants you to help other students ace it too. Check out ubcstudentsofferingsupport.com for more information. Questions and my-